Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The UK's expelled Russian diplomats for the latest poisoning. Was that not enough or too much? We'll discuss what motivates and deters Russia. Politicians the world over campaign against refugees. We'll consider what the world's religions have to say about welcoming the stranger. And Sudan's peace process is overwhelmingly male. We'll meet three women who've worked to change that. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. As we heard in the BBC News, the UK Prime Minister Theresa May ordered the expulsion of 23 Russian diplomats from Britain and is, dis- and is thinking about more action. We're going to talk about the reaction to what's happened uh, with Russia in Britain with Luke Harding. He's a foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He was Moscow correspondent from 2007 to 2011. He's the author of Collusion, which was published recently about uh, what's happened with Donald Trump in the election. But he's also the author of a book pertinent to this conversation, The The Assassination of Alexander Litvinko and Putin's War with the West. Thanks very much for joining us, Luke Harding. Hello. Um, You predicted all along that this was going to get worse before it got better and that there would be a a, a tit-for-tat back and forth. And it looks like that's what's happening uh, with Theresa May these days. Well, I think that's right. I wrote a book um, about five, six years ago called Mafia State about Russia, the way in which uh, essentially people think about it as as a nation, but actually in many respects, it's more like a crime syndicate. Uh, And and back then, a few people were saying, well, that's too alarmist. It's too gloomy. It can't surely be that bad. Uh, And I I think it is that bad. We we had, as as you said in your introduction, we had in 2006 in London, we had the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, who was a, a Russian dissident, killed with a radioactive cup of tea just around the corner from the American embassy. Um, and we had a, uh, a public inquiry in Britain that, that ruled that this was a Kremlin assassination, probably approved by Vladimir Putin himself. Uh, and, and now, of course, we have another case uh, in, involving different Russian exiles, someone called Sergei Skripal and his daughter, Yulia, who've been poisoned with a, with a sort of Soviet-made military nerve agent in a, in a sleepy cathedral city. And, and so I think uh, we're, we're in a crisis. We're in, there's a sort of bilateral crisis between London and Moscow. But I think there's also an international crisis about how you deal with a regime that, that essentially has gone rogue. And really, these uh, two deaths, the poisonings you just described, are just a, maybe the tip of the iceberg. There's also the instance of uh, Nikolai Glushkov here recently who was strangled, and you've been writing about that in The Guardian. There's the old uh, hanging of Boris Berezovsky, who think people uh, wonder about. There's other Russians getting dying in, in, in the U.K., 
Yeah, and and it's 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 tragic, Jerome. I actually knew Nikolai Glushkov. He, he's been slightly eclipsed because he he was strangled, so it was a kind of old-fashioned method, if you like. But but he was uh, another Russian emigre, very close to Boris Borisovsky, uh, who was an oligarch who who supported Putin and actually facilitated his rise to power, and then fell out with him and. Uh, ran away to London, where where he was found hanged in 2013 in his ex-wife's house. And Glushkov came to see me and was telling me, look, there are just so many cases, this is not a coincidence. All of my friends keep on dying. Now now he ha- has himself been murdered with, with the British police, with Scotland Yard saying on Friday that they were launching a major cr- criminal investigation. And I think what you have to understand is is the way that Putin, a former KGB officer, sees the world. And he regards these exiles as traitors who've betrayed the motherland and and therefore actually deserve their fate. Now, everybody in Russia understands that on one level. But of course, officially, Moscow says it has nothing to do with this. This is all British hysteria, Russophobia, and and so on. Uh, And and the the, the question now for the British government is, what do they do about it? The um, uh, motivation for Putin, though, you think it's straight up enforcement like a mafia state Don would do. It, it is nothing more than that. It's nothing uh, nothing about Ukraine. It's nothing about the sanctions. It's nothing about – I mean, uh, Gary Kasparov said that uh, that Glushkov's murder was something connected to the Mueller investigation and was uh, thinks that it's uh, trying to intimidate people who would cooperate with the Mueller investigation. Yeah, I actually agree with that. In fact, Gary told me that we were at a Putin conference in New York on on Friday, which which he organised. Um, and I think that's right. I think uh, Sergei Skripal was was uh, curious that it sounds was actually the instrument and the, the real target. I think ultimately the message was for people inside the Russian elite, oligarchs, but also people working for Russian spy services who are thinking about cooperating with the West. Uh, and Western intelligence, and in particular with Robert Mueller, the special counsel uh, investigating alleged collusion between Donald Trump's campaign and and, and Moscow. Um, and the thing is, what you have, have to understand about what happened in 2015, 2016, the, the Kremlin operation to sort of push Donald Trump, if you like, push him across the line and to to try and uh, attack and undermine Hillary Clinton was that it was it was quite a big operation. There are lots of people in Russia who know some of it. There, there was cyber hacking. There were career intelligence officers who were involved. Uh, there was a command structure. And, and while Actually, it's only very few people at the top, Putin and, and, and his immediate circle, who knew all of it. A lot of people know some of it. And, and you only have to look at what happened to, to Skripal to think twice um, about, about revealing what you know. Because clearly the, the message is, we can get you. We can, um, we can kill and come after your family as well at a moment of our choosing. And if you, if you, if you cooperate with the Americans, you will never be safe. I'm talking with Luke Harding from The Guardian, and we're talking about the uh, killings in uh, the UK and uh, Russia's responsibility for them. Uh, now, some people don't seem to take a very hard line on these uh, these killings. <laughs> who, who, who do you have in mind, Joe? Well, I got a couple people. There's one who was our, our president, apparently had a chat with Vladimir Putin today in the United States. And... Uh, uh, Donald Trump did not seem to bring this up. He brought up having a meeting with him, congratulated him on his victory, and moved on. Uh, so that's pretty odd. And, and then there's Jeremy Corbyn. And we're going to play uh, some clips of Jeremy Corbyn at Question Time. And it runs a few minutes, but it's, it should be quite instructive for people for the, to hear the, from the labor leader in the UK. The attack in Salisbury was an appalling act of violence. 
Nerve agents are abominable if used in any war. It is utterly reckless to use them in a civilian environment. The Prime Minister said on Monday, either this was a direct act by the Russian state or the Russian government lost control of their potentially catastrophically damaging nerve agent and allowed it to get in the hands of others. Our response must be both decisive and proportionate and based on clear evidence. If the government believes that it is still a possibility that Russia negligently lost control of a military-grade nerve agent, what action is being taken through the OPCW with our allies? And has the Prime Minister taken the necessary steps under the Chemical Weapons Convention to make a formal request for evidence from the Russian government under Article 9.2? How has she responded to the Russian government's request for a sample of the agent used in the Salisbury attack to run its own tests? high-resolution trace analysis been run on a sample of the nerve agent and has that revealed any evidence as to the location of its production or the identity of its perpetrators? And can the Prime Minister update the House on what conversations, if any, she has had with the Russian government? And while... And while suspending planned high-level contacts, does the Prime Minister agree that it is essential to maintain a robust dialogue with Russia in the interest of our own and wider international security? It is, as we on these benches have expressed before, a matter of huge regret that our country's diplomatic capacity has been stripped back with cuts of 25% in the last five years. It is, Mr Speaker, it is, Mr Speaker. The right honourable gentleman must be heard. There will be adequate opportunity for colleagues on both sides of the House to put questions. Members must be heard. Jeremy Corbyn. I couldn't understand a word of what the Foreign Secretary just said, Mr Speaker, but his behaviour demeans his office. It is in moments such as these that governments realise how vital strong diplomacy and political pressure are for our security and national interest. There's Jeremy Corbyn at Question Time talking about the situation with Russia. Um, now, he, he goes right after the clearest evidence and calls it into question. You've been talking with chemists about uh, the chemical, and uh, it, it seems like that's the thing that is the slam down evidence against Russia. Yes, uh, it's amazing actually hearing uh, Jeremy Corman. He, he seems to have missed the memo. He's, I mean, he's he's of the left, um, which is which is fine. I, I would say I'm also in a kind of progressive space, but but he doesn't seem to realise the Soviet Union is gone, and what we have now is a far right wing kleptocracy led by someone, Vladimir Putin, who lies about everything. So so were the British government to to send a, a chemical sample to Moscow, as Jeremy Corbyn uh, su- suggests. Putin would just shrug and say, nothing to do with us. We, we, we don't have this. Uh, why don't you go and talk to the fascists in Ukraine? Because they, they have it. They did it. Uh, some kind of disinformation. And uh, I really thought it was it was poor from Jeremy Corbyn. And I, I don't quite understand. I mean, of course, everyone wants dialogue. But what we're dealing with here is is actually a, a state, uh, highly likely that a state is um, 
murdering people um, on on British sovereign territory using uh, a, a kind of terrible toxin that also, by the way, poisoned a police officer who who was seriously ill in, in hospital and could have endangered even more sort of civilians. So I, I think tonally what he said was 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 wrong, and he doesn't seem to grasp who Putin is. And just on Donald Trump earlier on, I find that astonishing too. I mean, I mean the the president tweets a lot we we know that and we're all waiting after the salisbury attack for some kind of tweet from from president trump saying that he stands solidly with the british people and uh, and he sympathizes with them after this sort of terrible atrocity and and nothing instead we have a phone call to uh mr putin congratulating him on his election victory well the presidential election on Sunday in Russia was not exactly a nail-biter. Um, it's not really an election. Everyone knows that. It's a kind of fake election. And most European leaders have not congratulated Mr. Putin for that very reason. So um, I think just to turn quickly to kind of collusion, a lot of this story is hidden. A lot of the story is disputed. But some of it is, is in plain sight. I'm talking with Luke Harding. He's a correspondent for The Guardian, and he's the author of the recent book, Collusion, and he also wrote about the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko. And I wanted to ask a question about the the monetary connections between uh, Russia and the UK and what uh, keeps Russia or, or – uh, is there a monetary reason why the UK doesn't hit back harder at Russia? Yeah, you, you bet. Uh, a lot of Russian uh, oligarchs live in London or have property there. It, it's a kind of of all, all the destinations on the planet outside the Russian Federation. London is the favorite one because there's a huge community there um, of, of exiles, of businessmen who shuttle between the two capitals. Very often they've got their kids in the UK or their mistresses. Um, and I think f- for a long time, there was a sort of calculation inside various British governments that all of this money, some of it dirty money, was good for for headmasters of private schools was good for real estate guys um was was good for the city of london and and banking and so on um and and actually what it has done is rather kind of corrupted our society um and i think now there's kind of growing consensus both both from the left and the right that something needs to be done about this and what's interesting is that theresa may has has kicked out these 23 diplomats who who as you said earlier, left a couple of hours ago and have now flown back to Moscow. But the really hard thing to do is to is to clamp down on Russian money and on the sort of circle of, of multi-billionaires who orbit around Putin in Moscow. I was reading, uh, and this was from a couple of years ago, but I assume it's still true, that um, there is a special Tier 1 investor visa that uh, Britain hands out, and this first-class visa allows the British state uh, to... Uh, sell residency rights at uh, a million pounds a pop, and more Russians have received this than any other citizens of any other country. Yeah, I I mean, what you say is depressingly true. And I sort of think Britain has, I mean, exaggerating somewhat, but it's become a sort of giant version of Monaco, but with with bad weather, uh, essentially. And we, we do, we sell tier one uh, visas to to Russian investors, they're called. And I've actually talked. To, I, I talked to a Russian who, who did this, who basically said it's a it's a superb way of money laundering. You, you you spend a couple of million pounds. You and your family get get five year residency in the UK. You have to buy government bonds, UK government bonds. Uh, at the end of five years, you get passports. And the government gives you your money back, which has then been laundered <laughs> because, because its kind of provenance, its origin is, has become clean. It, it's astonishing we do that. And, and, and 
really, I think we have to stop doing that. Well, I mean, for Vladimir Putin's point of view, why shouldn't he think that he can act in and he should act in, with impunity towards the UK because he can get away with it? This is well, well, uh, well I mean, that, that, that's right. And, and a lot of people I've talked to because I, I know a lot of Russian exiles and, and my, my book, A Very Expensive Poison, is based on a lot of conversations with um, Alexander Litvinenko's uh, widow, widow Marina. The problem was last time around in 2006, the British government didn't do a huge amount. Uh, and therefore, what you see is Putin doubling down. Two, two Russian exiles murdered just before the presidential election, which worked very well in, in in Moscow and fueled the idea that, that Russia was under siege from, from America. This was all a, a conspiracy. Uh, and, and until something is done to, to sort of stop or to push back, then, then he, will, he will continue, including with kind of election uh, hacking, may I say, in the United States. So anyone who thinks that Putin will now stop because this has been a scandal is deluding themselves. He, he, he will continue. But the, the one weakness of this regime in Russia, unlike in the Soviet Union, is the people at the top are very rich, and all of their money is offshore, and it's in, in Western bank accounts. And so there are practical measures uh, that, that the American government, British government, could take. The, the, the problem is that the current president here uh, shows no interest whatsoever in, in doing anything that will offend uh, Mr. Putin. And so far as I know, has never criticized him. And I think never will criticize him. The U.S. has something called the Magnitsky Act, the Global Magnitsky Act now, and they can, they can go after people's money when it comes to Russia pretty at will. Well, that's right. But the number of people on it uh, thus far, Jerome, is, is relatively small. And I think one thing, for example, Theresa May could do, and, and the U.S. could do as well, if it wants to sort of stand in solidarity with Britain, is, is to put top 5,000 Kremlin officials and and their families on the list. That would really hurt because you, what you have to remember is that sort of Russia is a great country and it's it's not Putin. It's 142 million people, many of whom uh, are poor, many of whom are fed up with corruption, the lack of public services uh, and the, their, their government, which has essentially been seized by a, a group of sort of KGB people who are now all uh, super rich. They deserve better. And so any measures that the West takes should should be directed at those at the top. You've just been at something called PutinCon. What is PutinCon? Well, it was uh, it was a conference organised by Gary Kasparov, the the former world chess champion, who who when I was in Moscow was uh, a kind of opposition leader um, who who was essentially sort of squeezed out of public life. And about five years ago, he he took the very wise step of deciding to leave Russia permanently and relocate to the United States. And he brought together. Um, Russian dissidents, writers, journalists like myself, uh, and, and other kind of emigres for, for a day-long session on Vladimir Putin. And I have to say, the, the uh, security was enormous. It wasn't just the, the, the New York police who were there. The venue was only announced was a couple a- of hours before, before we actually all met there. It was all super, super secret. But there was, a, there was a sort of private security detail who were testing food and and, and swiping everyone for radiation, bearing in mind that one of the participants, someone called Vladimir Karamurza, who now lives in the United States and is an opposition guy, uh, terrifically brave, he has been poisoned twice in Moscow, nearly died wow. uh, on both occasions, and, and is now living, living in the U.S. Did the, did the group you were hanging out there have any sense of urgency about this particular moment, or is this just business as usual to them? Well, uh, I mean, I think I think it, the, the conference was timed to coincide with Putin's re-election. So he, he's now in power until 2024 and probably forever. I mean, I think I think he will outlast Donald Trump. He'll certainly outlast Theresa May. Um, and 
essentially he's he's a dictator i know i know we we we're a bit shy about using words like that but that's essentially what he is and and he's already eclipsed brezhnev in terms of uh, time in office and i think he may well eclipse stalin so um i think the conference was quite useful to just sort of clarify the nature of of, of putin's regime i mean gary was trying to strike an optimistic note about looking to the future and russia being a democracy and of course we would all wish that um but I think, I think, Jerome, you and I might be on our Zimmer frames before that happens, our walkers. <laughs> Luke Harding is a foreign correspondent with The Guardian, and he wrote most recently, Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win. He's also the author of The Assassination of Alexander Litvinenko and Putin's War with the West. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's been happening between the UK and the US and Russia. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking about what the world's major religions say about refugees and immigrants. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Politicians these days have a lot to say about refugees and immigration, but the world's religions have a lot to say on the topic, too. The traditions and sacred tests of all the major faiths have some advice on how we should treat strangers. Each year, the Nutrier Multi-Faith Alliance has a public discussion about what sacred texts say about a given topic. This year's focus is welcoming the stranger, what do sacred texts teach, and I'm moderating the discussion Thursday night at the Winnetka Community House. With me for with a little sample of the discussion is Greg Richards. He's a member of the Nutrier Interfaith Understanding Committee. Nice to meet you, Greg. Nice to meet you, Jerome, and uh, thank you in advance for appearing uh, with us on our panel Thursday night. I think it'll be really interesting and fun. It, it will be, and uh, this is actually the fourth in a series of educational panels that the Interfaith Understanding Committee of the Alliance has produced uh, since 2014. And uh, we were originally called the Winnetka Interfaith Council and for many years uh, served as an ecumenical organization to sort of coordinate and communicate between Protestant faiths. And then the membership was expanded to include Catholic and Jewish congregations in, in the 1970s. And then a few years ago, as Mitchell Slotnick from Temple Jeremiah took over the, the, uh, the then council, we decided to rename and reposition the alliance uh, to, to create, in, in fact, an alliance that would be uh, a little bit more progressive in terms of furthering the the multi-faith dialogue in our communities. For, firstly, Winnetka was too limiting. Our our congregations actually are throughout the uh, the New Trier Township area. Secondly, multi-faith we think better represents uh, the current trend. Uh, interfaith for some people still kind of means the Judeo-Christian dialogue in in the community. And then finally, alliance for us infers rather than a council that's sitting around pontificating on, on you know, particular uh, topics, we, we want to work together with all community groups. So again, this is our fourth uh, 
our fourth program to increase education, increase uh, knowledge and understanding of, of the multiple faiths in our community. And so you're, you're, the Nutri or Multi-Faith Alliance is about 14, 15 different organizations, and you have That's correct. Uh, Muslim organizations. We have a Baha'i representative with us right now, so you're, you're, you are definitely uh, moving it around a little. That's correct. And in each case, these, these multi-faith panels will look at a particular topic. Last year, for instance, we discussed the treatment of women. How far have we come? That last question indicates that we're willing to challenge the scriptures. We know that um, as they were originally written and as they are now perceived and, and discussed in, 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 in the context of today's issues, that not everything as written necessarily fits. And so the, 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 the panel is really intended to allow us to, to question and to probe the scriptural texts and determine, you know, how, how, does, it, how does it work for us today? A year, two years ago, we talked about, uh, you know, world conflict. And in times of, of such conflict and stress, what do, the, what do the texts say to us? So this year, um, we felt that immigration and the treatment of refugees in particular is a it's a hot topic. It's certainly relevant given policy changes in our country. So we wanted to uh, really focus there and to, to determine what the faiths uh, have to say about that. I'm talking with Greg Richards from the Nutrier Multi-Faith Alliance, and we're talking about this year's event on Thursday night, Welcoming the Stranger, What Do Sacred Texts Teach? Uh, about refugees and immigration, and with me uh, with me is Camille Codadad and Codadad, and she's an attorney and uh, with the Baha'i Faith. Thanks for joining me, and nice, nice to meet you. Nice meeting you as well. Thank you for having us here today. Um, what does the Baha'i Faith uh, have to, to say about uh, welcoming the stranger? How are you going to address this topic? Right. Well, one of the essential teachings of the Baha'i Faith is the oneness of humanity. So despite our differing ethnic, racial, and cultural characteristics, we are all underneath the skin members of one human family. And this analogy of the human family is really a beautiful one because what is a family? Essentially, it's a haven where the individual members are concerned about the well-being and the care of every other family member. So if we truly viewed ourselves as a family, then in effect, no one really is a stranger and we're all friends. Um, To that end, the Baha'i writings talk about how we need to treat the stranger and that we should be a home to the stranger. And the way that uh, I interpret that is not only that we invite strangers to our home, but that we make people feel at home in our presence. Um, You know, what is that feeling of home? When I think of home, I think of a place that is comfortable, where I feel safe, where I am accepted, where I am loved. So the goal of the Baha'i teachings is is to make strangers, whether they be immigrants, refugees, people who are different than us, feel at home in our presence. And do you end up acting on that impulse uh, in the Baha'i faith? Absolutely. Um, Baha'is act on that. On You will see that reflected on an international, national, regional, local, and individual level. And I really think it belong, It begins uh, on the individual level with Baha'is getting involved in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and uh, promoting the rights of other and others and being concerned about those who are oppressed, which is included in that group of, of strangers. Are Baha'is up in arms about what's going on today? 
Well, Baha'is are always um, at the forefront of standing for social justice. So it's not something that we change based on the current situation. It's something that we continually work towards. So, you know, Baha'is have been doing this for, for a very long time, and we have always been advocating for the rights of the oppressed. Camille Cotadad is uh, with the Baha'i Faith, and she's going to be part of the discussion on Thursday night at the Winnetka Community House, Welcoming the Stranger, What Do Sacred Texts Teach? Also with us um, by the phone is Suzanne Akra-Salul, and she's founder and executive director of the Syrian Community Network. I've known her for a bunch of years. Nice to talk with you, Suzanne. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you for having me. Um, Well, you're actively involved in, in helping refugees, and you are from the Muslim faith. Uh, what does Islam have to say about welcoming the stranger? Uh, first of all, Jerome, thank you for having me. And uh, since I've been on your show in 2015, I'd like to say that Syrian Community Network has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, and I'm happy that uh, to be on WBEZ to share our progress and, and that now we actually have a center in the north side of Chicago and that we're offering English as second uh, language classes and after school classes in our, in our very popular mentorship program. And um, even though Syrian Community Network is not a religious organization, but we certainly use our values um, as uh, someone uh, who is Muslim. I use my values uh, to uh, to guide me through um, helping refugees and welcoming the strangers. Um, you know, so many verses in the, in the Quran and um, in the Bible and in the Torah that talk about welcoming the stranger. Um, you know, certainly there's um, uh, verses in the Quran uh, that says, um, you know, those of you who immigrated and sacrificed in the in the cause of uh, for safety and for God, you know, are, will be rewarded. And so we use these verses to guide us. Um, and I also think about the verses in the Bible uh, in Matthew uh, when, um, uh, you know, for I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And th- these are some of the very similar uh, sayings in, in Islam and teachings uh, that uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, teaches us that when I was sick and you did not visit me and I was hungry, you did not vi- feed me. And um, uh, the companions will ask, well, how can we feed uh, feed you? Or, 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 oh God, how can we feed you? But he says, if you had served the refugee and served the, the sick, you would have found God uh, with, with the refugee. And our mentorship program is really meant to bring people together of different faith and different backgrounds together. Um, so, for example, um, we have uh, we paired a, a group of, uh, from the Bethlehem uh, Synagogue in, in Buffalo Grove to a family um, here that lives in, in Skokie, um, and his name is Ahmad Al-Atrash, and Ahmad is in a wheelchair because he has childhood polio. His whole life he's been in a wheelchair. And this group from Bethlehem um, uh, Synagogue took, really adopted this family Welcome them, help them. They even secured a job for for Ahmed uh, at a denim factory in in the South Loop um, because he used to work as a tailor in in Syria. And now he's working as a tailor here in Chicago, and so they really empowered him. And every day he takes the um, the train uh, from Skokie to the South Loop, and it takes him an hour to get to work and an hour to get home. So whenever I'm having you know a bad day or when I think about all the things that we have to do to uh, help the refugee families. I think of Ahmad, and I, I feel so inspired by him, and I feel so inspired by the group from Buffalo Grove who have really empowered this family like no other. Now, I imagine with the Syrian Community Network, you can see uh, all sorts of faiths trying to help refugees. I, uh, I know that you've had some level of um, you know focus on your organization in recent months, and this is uh, – can you give us some idea about the different faith groups that come to you and, and want to help? 
Yes, uh, like I mentioned, we have um, groups from different faith uh, backgrounds. Uh, we have from different churches, different synagogues. Uh, we have Muslims from different mosques that come come out and ask, uh, how can we be involved? And uh, the easiest way for us to uh, connect people together is through the mentorship program. And so we um, introduce the family uh, to a group or sometimes just to an individual. And then this, uh, you know, the group will take them on and, and, you know, kind of adopt them and help them in their adjustment and will help us in securing a job for this family. And at times, you know, we'll, we'll um, uh, support the children by registering them in a program, the summer program. Uh, but really, it's um, everybody wants to express their faith uh, through the refugee families. They feel that this is a calling, and they just there's so much outpouring of support in Chicago that it's amazing to see. And sometimes we can't even keep up with the re- amount of requests of, of people from different backgrounds asking how can they help. Um, Greg Richards? Yes, some other examples of interfaith cooperation on that issue. Uh, the Rohingya Cultural Center has been, you know, founded, uh, I think we have about 1,400 uh, Rohingya uh, refugees in the Chicago area. And now there is going to be a uh, English as a second language class uh, developed for to serve their clients. And uh, so a number of number of uh, communities of faith in the area now are doing fundraising to uh, facilitate these ESL classes at the center. And then, of course, uh, there are other groups uh, such as Hyas, which uh, for a long time helped to resettle uh, European Jews and and, and then served a number of other uh, groups from all different ethnic backgrounds and faiths. Um, And Temple Jeremiah, for instance, uh, in Northfield, uh, my congregation, was among several congregations in the area that provided mentoring and assistance to two women from the Congo Republic uh, who uh, you know, came here with Hyas. And actually, Jennifer Gong Gershowitz, who is going to be on our panel on Thursday night uh, and, and has uh, specialized in immigration law, was instrumental in, in working with Hyas to, to bring them over. So I think the point is that there have always been, at least in, in Chicago, where we, we have a number of different faith communities you know, working together, uh, the possibility to really join together to support uh, immigration needs. What do you make of all the people who are reluctant about helping refugees? Because uh, there's uh, – they are they following a different faith? What is the, what is the deal here? <laughs> Well, you know, there are adherents to any any faith where they are committed to the full body of scriptural law and they think that uh, the they're wedded to an ideology that tends to elevate them above other people of other religions. Uh, we would sort of think of these people as fundamentalists or, or maybe uh, sort of ultra-right ultra within that religion. And then there are, there are others within any body of, of, of faith that are more moderate and really see that the faith actually speaks to and permits – uh, charity and uh, assistance to to all groups. So, I, you know, to answer your question, Jerome, I just think that uh, you know, within every faith, there is a wide diversity of opinion on what that faith speaks to in relation to, uh, for instance, uh, in the Jewish community, there are those uh, that uh, have have um, said that security and economic well-being of the community are are very important. Uh, and that they they may moderate or influence our our opinion on on immigration or refugee issues. Camille Cotadon. Yes. Well, I mean, this essential purpose of all religion, from the way I see it, is to promote love and unity among human human beings, and to be the cause of the advancement of civilization. And if you look at the basic teachings and these writings that we'll be discussing on Thursday. 
this is what they talk about, being loving, being kind, being a family. And I think that um, some of what we've, we see when we, t- we talk about this topic of immigrants and refugees is that we've forgotten about that, that we have gotten away from the basic strip scripture and the basic purpose of religion, which is to bring people together and view ourselves as one human family. And, and that could be the reason why in Torah, for instance, it's repeated 36 times. Some, some have counted 46 times that you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And why, so why, why 36 times? And, you know, some people have posited that maybe it's just to overcome the certain sort of xenophonic ten- tendencies that we have. Have and saying that, look, you know, to fight the natural hatred you might develop for outsiders is um, is is your is your most important task. In fact, you know, maybe in the case of the Jews, God may have made you into the world's archetypal strangers so that you would fight for the ra- the rights of strangers going forward. And. Uh, so it's an interesting question. Absolutely. And we'll have lots more interesting questions to talk about on Thursday night at Welcoming the Stranger, What Do Sacred Texts Teach? It's happening at the Winnetka Community House. It starts at 7. It's free on Thursday night. And I'm sure people will, will have their lives enriched by going. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Greg Richards from the New Trier Interfaith Understanding Committee of the New Trier Multi-Faith Alliance. Suzanne Akra-Salul is founder and executive director of the Syrian Community Network, which is helping resettle Syrian refugees in our community. Great talking with you, Suzanne. We'll see you on Thursday night. And Camille Kodadad is an attorney here in the Chicago area, works on gender equity and um, a columnist as well. Thanks a lot for joining us and representing the Baha'i Faith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about women building peace in Sudan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Chicago's Heartland Alliance International works to advance peace in Sudan. They help support the Sudan Task Force on the Engagement of Women, and it's a group of activists and government officials who are committed to having women in peacemaking processes in Sudan. And several of the members of the group are here in Chicago and are here with me now. And Camila Cora is here, founder and chairperson of the Nuba Women's Education and Development Association. Great to meet you. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, Gamar Habani is here. She is with the Sudanese government's political uh, develop. She's the political development secretary <coughs> for the Women's uh, General Union. And thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for him. And Huda Shafiq is here, co-founder of the Gasser Center for Developments. It supports youth on issues of social justice and human rights policies. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, this sounds like such an interesting thing, the Sudan Task Force on the Engagement of Women. Uh, you started it five years ago. And what kind of impact did you want to make? Why did you guys come together to do this thing? Um, Huda, do you want to start? <laughs> 
Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, the group uh, came like as a product of a long work of by different women groups and as part of the women movement. And we saw it coming from different backgrounds and a very diverse uh, affiliations that there is a need to have this group because of the continuous conflict that we had in the country for a long time. And because we also saw that we need to have everyone on the table and that inclusivity is a solution and having women in the peace processes is actually like one of the guarantees of having a lasting peace. How male is the peace process? Would you would you describe it as, uh, I don't know, 80, 90 percent male? Um, or before more. You got, <laughs> before you got involved? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much dominated by specific uh, like gender groups, male if we can say, and specific uh, like levels of people. So we like the women, we like the communities and the civil society as well. Yeah. Um, Gamar, what's been the biggest accomplishment of the group? How did you manage to get in there and make a difference? Well, I think the main accomplishment of the group is that the diversity of the group itself, that uh, we came from a different background, civil society, political parties, uh, organization, and also some of uh, from the government, how to manage to be all together and to have like a, a national and a, a minimum agenda uh, to, to make... Uh, women's presence and representation in peace process in Sudan is reality. And as Huda said, this came after a long uh, walk and a long work and efforts together a women activist from different organizations. And Camila, you're from the Nuba Women's Education and Development Organization. What kind of difference did this make for uh, women in Nuba? Uh, thank you so much. Actually, the difference that make for Nuba is that um, uh, the Nubas, they came from uh, Nuba Mountain as displaced, and uh, they had lack of this kind of education. And uh, for me, being part of this group, I think I learned a lot and, and, and also have a big role to engage with the women down on the ground and also pass the information on to them. And for me, it is a very good uh, learning experience being uh, a, task, a task force member. Um, it was actually not easy right from the beginning when I started with because I used to feel like uh, um, I'm one of the marginalized groups and uh, I'm not being given the space to speak. But I think when I come to the task force, I realize that I need I have the space and uh, and I'm able also to bring other women on board. What do women want to say that is is different and that is going to make a difference in the peace process? Um, because women have, have the role. They are not seen just like victims. Like um, They have the role and they're resilient. They, they, walk, they wake up early in the morning to put food on the table. They, they look after their families. They, and and, and we, we are not also talking only about the peace at the, at the high level, peace at the community, at the house, at the family levels. Women have that very big role. They have role of being community leaders because that's where they engage with their uh, daughters, their community, to share and build the coexistence on the ground. I think they have that very big role. Uh, Huda Shafiq, you're working with young people primarily. What do they want to say? 
Uh, they want to be seen, uh, taken seriously. They want to be uh, to have a space to speak their mind and to set the and to advocate for the solutions from their perspective. Because they have been also like one of the most affected groups by the conflict, being like the highest rate in being recruited. They, yet again, they're not in the table to like to set the peace or to be in the decision making process. So they want to be part of the process. They want to be visible and they want their agenda to be uh, taken seriously. What are you guys doing while you're in the United States? What did you what did you come for? So we came uh, to attend uh, the Commission on the Status of Women in New York. So it's an annual big event that's happened every year in New York as a UN event. So we were there uh, to advocate and to learn experiences from other groups as well. And then we came to Chicago uh, as part of the trip organized by Heartland Alliance to also do another like uh, evaluation meetings, like how to develop our program and to be here in this nice place as well. I'm glad you came. Uh, so what have you learned in the trip? Uh, what have you been thinking about this um, here? Actually, the, the commission of uh, the women's status is, um, is a platform that brings women from all over the world. And it is really a, a good space for us to learn from each other and see what are the challenges that other women are facing from other countries and what are the successful stories they share. Um, this is, it was really very uh, good and useful platform for me and uh, to get engaged with um, donors and 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 and, and uh, in fact it was really it was really very rich uh, experience that I learned uh, that I got uh, do you think people have some preconceived notions about Sudan and what it is and what um, what it could be Huda, you're shaking your head already. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, whenever I travel and people know that I'm from Sudan, I always, like, get this uh, shock in their faces uh, because of the idea about the country that is only, like, going through Mm. war and, like, conflict and bad situation, which is, I mean, true to a big extent. But there is also the other side of resilience and resistance Mm. and solidarity and just being there for each other and working to where to go out of this and to fulfill our dreams and to use the resources that the country has. Do, do you want to say something else about that, Gamar? Yeah, I think um, uh, for the Commission on the Status of Women, it's a good chance and opportunity for us to come and share experiences. And uh, this annual uh, theme is about uh, empowering rural women, which mostly in Sudan is a uh, conflict zones, the rural women. So I think it's a good opportunity for us. And also in terms of uh, Sudanese to be here, yeah, it's uh, everybody's here about Sudan a lot. But when he see a Sudanese ladies with different shapes, different uh, features and different even dresses, uh, say, wow, this is Sudan, yeah, this Sudan. And with all diversity and uh, all its uh, nice uh, diversity and do you have a goal for the Sudan Task Force for um, the engagement of women? Uh, what is, what's your long-term goal? Huda? 
Um, we are working towards achieving an uh, inclusive peace processes. And by inclusive, we're talking that the peace processes and the security paradigm shouldn't be just defined as linked to the political parties, armed groups, and government officials. The people in the community, the women, the youth groups, and everyone should have their say as part of it. But our main other goal is to have gender parity within all the peace processes, agendas, and uh, bodies that's out of, out of the process. Um, Camila, do you have a goal uh, for the organization? Of course. Uh, as Suda put it, uh, our goal is to... Um, increase women into this process, uh, peace process, uh, with 50% if we are praying for that. At least. <laughs> At least. <laughs> yes, and, and, and also um, sharing with the community down because the community normally they they like um, they left and, and there is this very big gap between the community and the high level. So our role also is to, to bridge that gap uh, by sharing the information we are having uh, from, the, from the high panel, from the high uh, politicians uh, to the community grassroots, women and youth. And uh, this, is one, oh, this is one of the goals actually is that to bridge the gap. Camila Cora is founder and chairperson for the Nuba Women's Education and Development Association. The group works with marginalized women and children in Sudan's Nuba Mountain region. Gamar Hambani is the Sudanese government's uh, political development secretary for the Women's General Union. Thanks for joining us, Gamar. And Huda Shafiq is co-founder of the Gasser Center for Development. It supports youth on issues of social justice and human rights policies. And they've been in Chicago visiting with the Heartland Alliance International, which helps support their peace efforts in Sudan. Congratulations, and it's been nice meeting you. Great to, great to see you. Thanks for coming Thank to Chicago. You so Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about inequality and the history of inequality. It'll be a bang-up conversation. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Abdul and Anna Waters. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.